This is Wilderness and Wildlife, presented by the Gallatin Wildlife Association in Bozeman, Montana. This is a half-hour program featuring commentaries and interviews with wildlife and wilderness advocates relating to the unique natural environment that we enjoy in the wildlands all across the West and across America. I'm your host, Jay Shell. Today we are interviewing George Worsner, an ecologist, writer, photographer, and a former hunting, hunting guide who has a, holds a degree in wildlife biology and has just returned from an exploratory trip to Alaska, checking out proposed development projects in several parts of the northern state. George has previously been a guest on Wilderness and Wildlife. He writes frequently about wildlife and forestation and wildfire. So, George, welcome. Great to have you back. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. So, uh, tell us about your recent trip to Alaska. Where'd you go? Yeah. What'd you do? Sure. It was to the uh, Kobuk River, which is in northwest Alaska on the southern edge of the Brooks Range. And uh, the Kobuk flows, I think, for about 400 miles to the Bering Sea and starts up in the gates of the Arctic National Park and then flows westward. And during its westward flow, it crosses uh, the Kobuk Valley National Park, which is a, um, a, a, the least visited national park in the country. Yeah, they were put in at Kobuk uh, itself and then uh, floated through the gates of the Arctic. How did you get to Kobuk? Uh, Bush Park? Well, no, actually, um, the portion that we floated was between several villages. So you can fly in, and that was part of the reason it was to make it a cheap trip, so to speak, inexpensive. You can fly on a regular commercial flight. Uh, we're talking about nine passenger no planes, not big. Uh, but it's relatively inexpensive to fly to any village in Alaska uh, on these flights. Um, and, for example, to fly from Kotzebue to Kobuk, the village that we started at, I think was $225. Uh-huh. And um, and then so and then we floated uh, down the Kobuk River to another village called Kayana. And from there, we flew back to Kobuk and from Co- I mean to uh, Kotzebue. And then from Kotzebue, you know, you just get back to Anchorage and on to the lower 48 states. So the idea was partly uh, in the 1970s, I worked for the BLM on the Kobuk River surveying native allotments. The native allotments were a consequence of the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act, which uh, passed Congress in 1971. And among, there were a number of things in that act, but one of them was that it allowed each individual native in Alaska to claim uh, several sites, up to four sites, for their personal use. Uh, And then each village got to claim land around the village for the village use. And then 12 regional corporations were set up to be run to benefit, you know, a collection of villages in a particular region. And uh, those native corporations cover the whole state basically along, oh, you might say somewhat along uh, racial lines. So, for example, um, the natives on the Kobuk River are uh, Inupiat or uh, Eskimo, and uh, and other native corporations might include Aleuts or or Athabascan Indians, etc. So, I was living on the Kobuk River for extended periods of time back in the 70s, and I hadn't been back since then. And I, I was curious to see what changes had happened. And part of the motivation for going now as opposed to any other time is there is a proposal to develop uh, huge copper deposits that are in the mountains uh, 
near the Kobuk River, and they've been well known since, well, they were first discovered in 1948. And, um, you know, even when I worked there in the 1970s, we all knew that there was valuable deposits nearby, but the cost of development has always prevented anything being done about it. And so what's being proposed now is to build a 211-mile-long road from the Pipeline Hall Road, or what they call the Dalton Highway, that services the oil fields up on Prudhoe Bay and connects all the way down to Valdez, which is an ice-free port year-round. And the idea would be, if the road is built, that then they would have open-pit mines and take the ore by by this road, which is called the Ambler Road Problem. Uh, project uh, and ship the uh, ore to uh, by truck to uh, Valdez, and then they would do the refining in China. Mm. And so it's a very controversial thing because this road, among other things, would cross the southern edge of the Brooks Range through the Gates of the Ark National Park and across many other Wild and Sink rivers and just uh, in general, be disruptive to the uh, local wildlife populations. But on the other hand, um, it's the one of the ways that they uh, that is seen as a way to make it economically profitable to do this copper development. And I have to explain that because of Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act, many of these native corporations, to their credit, you might say, were strategic about the lands they claimed. And one of the things that they focused on were high areas of high mineralization. So this area that's north of the Kobuk River, uh, most of the claims there are owned by the Nana Corporation, which is the local regional uh, native corporation. And not surprisingly, they're in favor of this development because, you know, they would get a lot of money for their shareholders, which is all the villagers in the region. And uh, and so you have them in favor of development, and then you have the state of Alaska, which uh, wants to see the development for a variety of reasons. Because uh, one, of course, they 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 think it's good to have jobs uh, and to be able to tax the development, and it's all part of a long-term transportation plan. The state of Alaska has always wanted to build a road out to the Kobuk along the southern edge of the Brooks Range. In fact. As part of the uh, another uh, land settlement that created the national parks in Alaska, the state was uh, selected a bunch of land as well, and they selected a huge proportion of the land along the southern edge of the Birch Range, which is the road route uh, would go across. So the state is for it, and then of course the congressional delegation from Alaska is also for it. So you have all those forces lined up in favor of the development of the road. And then you have some opposition to um, the road, the early part of the road route would cross near some Athabascan Indian villages, and they do not own the copper claims along the Kobuk River and would gain no financial benefit from development. And as far as they are concerned, all they would see is the negatives, which they fear is the road would uh, allow more hunting and, and fishing from people that don't live locally and may affect their ability to do subsistence uh, hunting. Now, it's important to note that as currently planned, this road would be, is going to be considered a private industrial road. 
and the claim is there will be no public access other than mining trucks and equipment. However, the Dalton Highway or the Pipeline Hall Road was also billed as that. Within a few years of the final construction, it was open to the public as well. So many people are skeptical about that claim that it would remain private. Now, there's one more factor, too, why the villagers, particularly on the Kobuk, may be supportive. You know, a lot of them sort of ambivalent about it, to be sure. But, you know, right now, to get any kind of food, fuel oil, anything to those villages, they have to be shipped in mostly by airplane, and it's very expensive. And if this road is completed and is open to the public, including the natives in these villages, uh, you know, they'll be able to drive to Fairbanks and buy a snow machine and drive it back or whatever they need to buy and save a tremendous amount of food, even uh, save a tremendous amount of money over what their current expenses are. So what you have is these conflicting, you know, support and opposition uh, to the road. And the Trump administration approved the road, and then it was taken to court by uh, various groups, including the uh, Athabascan Indians that in the eastern part of the route, proposed route, as well as some conservation groups. And the Biden administration has decided, has told the BLM to reassess the road and do a better environmental impact statement. So right now it's in limbo. In other words, it has not gone forward, but here's my view of it. It will probably happen. And the reason is twofold. One, the copper deposits there are considered some of the richest in the whole world. And when you're sitting on top of the richest copper deposits in the world, in particular, given the increasing use of copper and things like, you know, electric cars and computers and everything else, it's hard to see where it would not those mines wouldn't be developed at some point. Now, they don't necessarily have to be developed with this particular road. You know, one might say in 10 years or 15 years, maybe there'll be some other way to get the ore out uh, without building a road uh, for less money to make it uh, economically feasible. But for right now, the only way that it's economical is if, if a road of some sort is built. And the one that I talked about along the south end of the Brooks Range is only one of four proposed routes. So even if this road is not approved, you've got several other alternatives that are out there. A second reason why I think it will ultimately be built is, or some, at least the mines will be developed, is, uh, you know, there was recently a passage of, uh, and and the Biden administration supports this, is uh, to try to, how should I say, get critical minerals developed within the United States so we're not dependent on importing minerals uh, that we need for whatever uh, from foreign countries. And so given that this is one of the largest and richest copper deposits in the world, it's a 70-mile-long band along the mountains. We're not talking about one little area. Um, it, it, would, uh, it would seem to fit into the national interest uh, mandate to try to you know, facilitate um, development of these resources in the United States. And then there's a final political calculus that's behind all this, too. And that is, um, as I mentioned, uh, uh, quite a number of native groups. That's NANA that owns the claims, but even the Northwest uh, Borough, which is north of there up by Point Barrow, another native uh, group, um, uh, supports the development. And I think part of the reason, as well as I mentioned the state, I think part of the reason is is they see if they can get the one road in that that will allow more roads to be built, which will access 
other mineral deposits that are valuable, maybe, maybe not world-class, but if you can get a road to it, it becomes worth developing. So, um, that, and that to me is my biggest fear is not, it's not just this one road is that it will lead to all kinds of a spaghetti network of roads in the area, um, which will have a lot of ecological and environmental impacts. Right. And, and then the other reason why it's likely to be built is, uh, and then again, this is a political calculus, uh, Senator, uh, Lisa Mikowski, uh, from Alaska has been, willing to vote against the other Republicans on certain issues. For example, she voted to uh, to uh, uh, impeach Trump, and one of few, few Republicans willing to do that. So the Biden administration sees her as a possible um, vote on maybe a critical issues that they really care about. And, and so this is the kind of thing, well, if we approve your road uh, to, the, uh, to the Ambler Mines, uh, you know, we expect something back for that, and we want you to vote on this other issue that you know maybe the Biden administration considers more important. But the so, Biden administration did uh, put a uh, ask for a review of the road, uh, right? So it it, it brought, brought at least a temporary halt to uh, to the road uh, development. Exactly. And and I would, you know, just if I, I mean, it'd be wonderful if they decided not to build the road. But one thing that may be the end result is just to put more restrictions and, uh, you know, uh, sidebars on the road construction to try to mitigate what are considered some of the um, the potential impacts. Right. And then and then and then allow the road to go forward. You know, who knows? But right. um, it's. Uh, there, there is, a, there has been a tendency, like the Biden administration uh, went along with opening up the Naval Petroleum Reserve for oil development, for example, and and then the other part of this whole calculus you have to keep in mind is that um, there there's a ambivalence among the administration in that they, um, in terms of, they don't want to say no to something that uh, Native people support, and since there is a significant amount of support among the local uh, villagers and the, and the uh, local regional corporation, uh, they have to think very strongly about opposing it uh, because, uh, you know, they'll suffer some right. uh, setbacks as a result. So tell me about so, your, tell me, tell me yeah. your trip itself uh, on yeah. the river. Uh, how, did you yeah. get, how did you get a raft uh, to the put-in spot? Well, uh, I have an inflatable kayak, and... Uh, so I had to fly it in. It didn't. It didn't cost. I had to pay a little bit extra weight on the flight, but uh, it didn't cost much. And my friend who went with me, uh, Bill Cunningham, who's from Montana, uh, longtime wilderness advocate in Montana, also had a pack raft. And so uh, it didn't. We had these inflatable uh, uh, boats, and uh, the 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 Kobuk itself is is a flat water river. It's it it doesn't have any rapids at that from between those villages where we we're using it now the very headwaters does have some has a canyon has significant uh rapids but we wanted to i wanted to float the area that i had previously worked in back in the 1970s and um there's there's some interesting things to uh that i noted then this is all anecdotal and i have no backup evidence to support it but uh you know i was involved in serving these native allotments and a lot of them were like fish camps or hunting camps 
uh, that uh, villagers used along the river. Uh, and one of the things I observed, it seemed like there was a lot less of that use on the river today than there was back in the 70s. In other words, less fish camps. Uh, a lot of the uh, cabins that we, uh, more accurate description might be shacks, uh, that we uh, encountered along the route looked like they were in disrepair and abandoned. And um, and one of the things I noted walking around in the villages, again, anecdotal as my memory recalls from the 1970s, uh, a lot of villagers back then had dog teams because this is kind of be- just as snowmobiles were coming into use. And they fed the dogs uh, dried salmon that they caught in the river. But, you know, I hardly saw any dogs in any of the villages other than you would call pets, you know, like mm-hmm. might be one dog at a house or something. Mm-hmm. And um, and so I think what's happened is that the the need for doing things like fishing on the river has declined significantly. And, uh, and also, the villages today, um, even pretty isolated villages, are, it's almost like being in, you know, uh, uh, I don't quite know how to describe it. It's not quite like being in a suburban American uh, community, but uh, it's surprising how similar in many ways uh, the villages are to living almost any place else, you know, n- not in the middle of the Brooks Range. Uh, for example, um, almost everybody I saw, including teenagers and to old people, had cell phones. Uh, there's Wi-Fi in all the villages. There's, um, uh, you know, you can buy food locally in stores there. It's expensive, but, you know, you can get fresh vegetables and fruit. And, you know, if you want to buy hamburger meat or whatever, it's it's there uh, to, to to obtain. Uh, the uh, uh, There's, like, se- sewer systems, you know, with uh, uh, and, and, and all the homes have electricity to them for the most part. And, and uh uh, the um, uh, you know peop- the the villagers are wearing Patagonia clothes. <laughs> I mean, it, it, you could you could step out of that village and you'd be you know uh, hard to tell anybody was living anyways different than maybe living in a, a you know outside of Seattle or something. And so the those changes have happened since I was there last time and. And one of the consequences of that is, I think, and again, this is anecdotal, I have no way to confirm it, I think that, you know, subsistence hunting and fishing uh, has declined, uh, particularly among younger people, uh, and and it's what has replaced it is the cash economy. So this circles back to the mines, uh, because working at, at the mines uh, would pay very well. Uh, their Nana Corporation owns another mine called the Red Dog Mine, which is one of the larger producers of zinc in the, in the country. And, you know, it's, uh, I met any number of villagers, just, you know, I stopped at every village and just was wandering around talking to people and so forth, that work at the Red Dog Mine part-time, and they get paid very well. And, and for some of the people living there in the villages of the Kobuk, having a, having a, a mine literally in their backyard uh, might allow them to work at the mine without even having to leave the village, mm-hmm. and um, so it's it's attractive for that reason because um, the the change from a totally subsistence lifestyle to a more or less a cash economy has already happened, and um, and and so that is a big incentive for pushing the mine. Now, on the other hand, 
for anybody who wants to do a subsistence lifestyle, and I didn't mention this stuff, the ecological costs, uh, it's very likely that the road will disrupt uh, caribou migrations. Uh, it might, uh, they're going to have to use a tremendous amount of gravel to insulate the road from the permafrost. So digging up gravel all along rivers, which may cause sedimentation and affect fisheries. Uh, there's the, um, uh, just the increased, um, you might say, access might bring in terms of hunting pressure uh, that will affect uh, both the ability to get, say, caribou or find them even if their, their migration routes are disrupted. Um, and, and so it, the construction of the road from that perspective, in other words, it will, it, w- it may preclude, uh, the ability of people to choose a semi-subsistence lifestyle. In other words, if you wanted to, yeah, you might take a job for a couple of months at the Red Dog Mine, but then you want to get most of your meat from caribou. You prefer, you prefer the taste of caribou. You know, you like hunting or whatever, um, to, you know, buy a hamburger at the store. Uh, or chicken or something like that, uh, that opportunity may be precluded by the development of the, the road networks and the, and the mining operations. So it, it's, it's sort of like taking away future opportunities for uh, people in those villages to make a choice like that. And so that's a, that's a cultural thing that's going to happen uh, that um, is – I, I don't know how the the EIS assess that kind of uh, uh, impact, but so uh, many, it certainly would be one. How many villages did you uh, did you stop by? Uh, four, all, four four villages altogether. Uh-huh. And, and uh, one of one of the reasons this is a funny sort of sort of story, maybe. <laughs> um, you know, when you fly in Alaska, okay, uh, they have all sorts of limitations on what you can take on the plane with you. Uh-huh. including uh, you're not allowed to take any fuel canisters. Right. And uh, we had bought a bunch of fuel canisters for our camp stoves in Kotzebue, and the, the airline wouldn't let us take them. So, uh, so then every village, part of the reason we stopped there, besides I wanted to see them all because I uh-huh. worked and lived around there, you know, long ago, was uh, we'd go to the village store trying to buy, <laughs> buy some fuel canisters, which we were never able to obtain in any of the villages because – uh, actually, very few people float that section of the, the river. And that's another interesting thing I, I should mention, that the Kobuk Valley National Park is about almost the size of Yellowstone. And it and it gets it's supposedly the least visited national park in the country. And and that would be very believable from my experience. There's like there's no sign as you float the river entering Kobuk Valley National Park. There was no ranger station. There were no rangers. There was no trails. There was no interpretive signs. And we didn't see a single other recreationalist on the on the float. And, uh, you know, every place we stopped to stretch our legs or whatever, we saw grizzly bear tracks, wolf tracks, moose tracks. But we never saw a human footprint. So um, it, it very much is... Uh, a remote place. In fact, in my view, it's, it's sort of wilder today than it was uh, when I was there 50 years ago, uh, given that, you know, there's fewer people seemingly uh, living along the river, at least seasonally doing things like fishing. And, and so in a sense um, it, it's, you know, it's reputation as the least visited national park certainly is upheld by my observations. So I know that uh, one of the one of the specialties that you have is of uh, commenting on wildfire danger. Uh, how much how much of that 
condition is existing up there in that part of Alaska? Well, it's um, up until the sort of almost the end of July. Actually, Alaska had very few fires going this year. There only two thousand acres had burned. I think by you know July twentieth or twenty first, something like that, in the whole state. Uh, and uh, unlike what we're what we're seeing over in Canada and uh, you know Northwest Territories and British Columbia and Alberta and so forth. So it was um, not many fires. And then some lightning storms started a few fires. In fact, we had some smoke on some days coming from some fire, which we didn't know where. Uh, and we had at least two days where we had lightning storms, uh, which probably ignited some fires along the way. I, I have no idea because we were totally out of communication with anything uh, while we were on the river. So I don't know what was happening. But the point is, is um, that that area does is forested. The Kobuk Valley has a lot of wetlands, really a lot of wetlands, but it also has uh, a forest of spruce, of white spruce, black spruce, birch, aspen, and um, and you know they burn occasionally. Uh, I saw one small area of where there was a fire along the river, but um, I would say at least that region right along the river. Because it's so wet, on it's it, the the Kobuk Basin is like uh, uh, between two mountain ranges, and it's just like covered with lakes and marshes and swamp and and uh, lots and lots of permafrost and uh, ponds, and it it would be you know it'd have to be pretty pretty much a severe drought to have a fire you know spread through there uh, very far, but um, you know uh, Alaska is warming faster. We saw quite a bit of uh, evidence of permafrost melting and um and you know the it, it, during our trip it was never extremely warm but warm enough to be just wearing a t-shirt uh on sunny days uh and so you know it's probably was in the again i didn't have any way to measure this but it was probably at least in the 70s um when i was on some days when we were floating the river so uh you you have written uh, about your trip uh, a couple days ago in the Wildlife News. Uh, that's an online article that people can access? That's correct, yes. Just uh, Google Wildlife News and, and Kobuk, and it would probably show up. I've written a few earlier articles, too, about this controversy, so they get some background on some of those earlier articles as well. Right. Well, it sounds like a great trip, uh, and... Uh, I guess you. I guess you already knew a lot, but you you learned a lot more. So yeah, must have been a must have been a great thing to do. Well, it was it was sort of like you know, it, it, uh, I'm sure you know this is kind of interesting for you, but too is to go back to some place where you spent a fair amount of time. Uh, I spent three different summers on the Kobuk River doing surveying uh, up and down between all these villages and. Um, you know, to to go back to the same place and see, you know, did it change a whole lot? And the the landscape didn't change. The and, and the the main change was the lifestyle of the villagers. Uh, I mean, even the most isolated village there, uh, Kobuk, only has 200 people. Gets two flights a day from Kotzebue, and Kotzebue has three flights a day jet to Anchorage and a few to Fairbanks. I mean, isolation uh, is just not what it used to be yeah and uh it's real easy for somebody in Kobuk, for example you know to go to anchorage for a day and come back the next day and be back home and uh so it's 
it's a, a different world today than it was uh, 50 years ago. Well, George, we've exhausted our time, but uh, this has been fascinating, and I really appreciate your telling us about it. And uh, I guess you conclude that uh, the the uh, road is going to eventually be built, despite the opposition of some of the groups against it. But uh, it's going to go ahead eventually. Bad. That would be. We'll have yeah, to figure out how to accommodate the the changes that it'll bring. That's uh, that's what I think. I think um, you know it's uh, it'll it'd be nice if it was not approved. But uh, it, given that it's one of the world's biggest copper deposits in the whole world and really significantly rich deposits, it's hard to imagine it won't be developed at some point, even if this road is not the way it's done. Right. Okay, George. Well, thank you very much. Uh, thank you. Great to talk to you. All right. Take care. Yeah. Thank you, Jay. Our guest today has been writer and photographer George Werthner, who's just returned from an exploratory trip to the northern part of Alaska. This has been Wilderness and Wildlife, a presentation of the Gallatin Wildlife Association in Bozeman, Montana. To hear more of these half-hour interviews, go online to js-wilderness.com and see additional features of our website. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Jay Shell.